and welcome to International Relations 101 After the Lecture, a podcast by the International Relations Society at the Australian National University. I'm Jessica Honan, the President of the Society, and with me is International Human Rights Lawyer Shannon Marie Torrens. Shannon's a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney and is a current member of the New South Wales Bar. Her biography is extensive and very impressive. Just a few of her achievements include working at the International Criminal Tribunals and Courts for Rwanda, the former Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone and Cambodia. She has extensive experience with the UN, working with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, Children's Fund, World Food Program, and she's also worked at the Australian embassies to Italy and the Holy See. She served as a legal advisor for the Marshall Islands Permanent Mission to the UN, including working on the country's engagement with the International Criminal Court, or the ICC, as we'll be referring to it today. So that was just a very brief summary of Shannon's achievements. If you want to read more, we'll link her bio to our Facebook. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. No, Jessica, thank you so much for having me. And it's a, it's a, a privilege to speak to you uh, and interesting at this particular time to have this kind of discussion. So thank you so much. So we'll be discussing the ICC today as a follow-on from our last podcast with Josie. Last week, we talked about preventing mass atrocities. And this week, we will be looking at the ICC, that is Institutional Accountability Mechanism for Combating Mass Atrocities. For our listeners who are unaware about the ICC, I'll give you a brief outline before we start. The ICC is an intergovernmental tribunal that has jurisdiction to prosecute individuals for genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and crimes of aggression. It's considered a court of last resort in that it's only used when states are unwilling or unable to prosecute these people in their domestic legal systems. The ICC was established in 2002 by the Rome Statute, which was a multilateral statute. As of 2019, there are 123 member states, and thus far, 45 individuals have been indicted, including Ugandan rebel leader Joseph Kony, former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, and Libyan leader Gaddafi. So it might seem like I've hijacked this international relations podcast into a legal podcast, but in reality, the ICC is a very political body, which is highly significant in international affairs. This political nature of the ICC is one of the reasons why it's quite controversial. After all, the separation of powers is a widely accepted principle that legal institutions shouldn't be political. So Shannon, I'll start off by asking you about this political nature of the ICC. In what ways do you think that it is a political body? That's a great question. I think it's a really good place to start as well. I think if you don't work in this field, you tend to think of a court of justice must just focus on the law and it it must be just uh, pursuing the rule of law. But at the international level, uh, in my opinion, uh, that's actually not the case. At the international level, politics is an inherent part of both the establishment but also the work of these international criminal courts and tribunals. So this is actually a school of thought that's been increasing in popularity as as modern international criminal justice has been developing because at the beginning we tend to focus just on the court, on the prosecutions, but as time goes on we tend to to look at these uh, courts and we think, well, we're seeing political interference by different states and, and different individuals in the work of the court and is this appropriate? Is it impacting on the justice process? of the court and what should we do about it. But I tend to be of the opinion that politics can be a hindrance 
but it can also be a, a benefit. These courts, they wouldn't be established if it wasn't for politics, if it wasn't for states working together to combat international crime and, and an end to impunity. So we have to accept the fact that politics is a part of these mechanisms. And I think we, we can look at ways that we can use this political interference in a positive way. And of course, there are many negative uh, implications of this, such as on the justice process, we see states, for example, uh, we might talk about later on the US interfering in the Afghanistan case at the International Criminal Court. And I think it's a really interesting area to be talking about. You said that there were some benefits perhaps to having a political nature of the court. Would you be able to expand on that a little bit? Just talking specifically about the International Criminal Court, the International Criminal Court cannot operate without the cooperation of states. It doesn't have its own police force. So when individuals uh, must come to The Hague to be prosecuted, it's it's up to the states to actually arrest those individuals and facilitate their movement to The Hague. The UN or the International Criminal Court itself can't can't do that itself. So that way we have to have the cooperation of the states and, and that's a positive political interference. And also other ways that states can work towards facilitating the justice process could be uh, through uh, communicating the benefits of the court to their citizens and to other states, encouraging them to sign up to the Rome Statute and encouraging them to adhere to, uh, to the laws of, of international criminal law. I guess underpinning something that you just said before was that Mm. the court has a benefit and that it should exist. Mm. So what do you see the value of the court in the international system to be? Is it judicial or political Mm. or sentimental or a combination of factors? That's a good question. I, I've, I've contemplated this myself uh, through my research. And yeah, it's, it's a very good question because I think, how do we define value? How do we define what is valuable to and who is us? Who, who is actually defining this value? Is it uh, academics? Is it practitioners? Is it the states? Is it victims? And so you could think of a lot of different ways that, that an international criminal court and specifically the ICC could be valuable. Uh, it, it could facilitate an end to conflict in certain instances. So there could be an end to impunity, which means that if you, if you commit an international crime or someone does, there will be repercussions for that. But the ICC represents uh, international cooperation, even though it's imperfect. And, and there are many ways we can critique it and criticise this international cooperation. It, it does reflect states and the international community coming together in that way. And there is a value to the victims. Of course, some victims might suggest that the International Criminal Court hasn't hasn't uh, helped them to the extent that they wish that it had with respect to the crimes that have been committed. But there's also just value in the prosecutions themselves and in the jurisprudence of the court and, and the findings it's had. And in terms of you talking about the sentimentality of the court, that's an interesting question. I've never heard of uh, someone asking a question like that before. There is a sentimentality about the ICC in that it's a... Uh, it, it looks back to an era in when when international cooperation is perhaps more respected and it was easier than it is today. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why the International Criminal Court's not working as well as it could because it's focused on international cooperation, but in an era when there's more unilateral action in the international community. 
Just adding to that, do you think that there is any preventative value in the court? Does it help to end yeah. the atrocities at all? Yeah, that's what we in this field we call deterrence. Does does this the existence of this court uh, help in deterrence? Well, <laughs> there there are people who say yes and people who say no. I say I don't think we can assess that adequately at this point. If you're looking at international criminal law as a whole, so all of these different tribunals, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, the Khmerish Tribunal, Sierra. Leone, all of these tribunals together. Yes, there is a level of a level of, of deterrence that I think we can see, but not to, not to the same extent that you see at the domestic level. And the reason for that is because there is not the predictability that you see in, in domestic criminal law. Uh, we don't know when another tribunal will be established. We don't have that degree of, of predictability. But there are st- some studies that have been done which say that, you know, a warlord or someone who's about to commit an international atrocity, they don't think, well, I might end up in The Hague one day. They, they're not thinking on that level because also conflicts are uh, a very, you know, difficult circumstances. You don't, p- people might not have that, that idea in their mind. Uh, so I'll turn now to some of the other issues or controversies that are facing the court. And you sort of spoke on that a little bit before. Uh, This is a very broad question, but what do you identify that some of the difficulties of the court are and how do you think that they could be managed or solved? For a long time, one of the major difficulties that was levelled against the court was its African focus. So all of the cases were from Africa. And uh, Fatou Bensouda, the prosecutor of, of the International Criminal Court, who is incidentally from Africa herself, has said, well, a, a lot of states, a lot of African states are signed up to the Rome Statute and they've also referred the situations, some situations to the court. So that's why we're focusing on Africa. But I tend to think that an international criminal court shouldn't just focus on Africa and should focus on a lot of different areas. But because of political constraints and the power of of certain major players in the international community, such as the United States, it means that we can't prosecute all the crimes that we would ideally like to. For example, Syria as a big challenge in prosecuting crimes against Syria because of the political interference in that situation. Other challenges, well, you could say the International Criminal Court is established uh, in The Hague, which is in the Netherlands in Europe, and that's quite far away from many of the crimes that the court prosecutes and focuses on. So there's a big dislocation between uh, the court and the victims. And that's been criticised because, firstly, the victims can't actually come to the court to watch the proceedings, and they're very dislocated from what's happening. They should be more involved. The court has a a situation called outreach. And and what outreach does is is it goes into the community, uh, the post-conflict community, where there's been international crimes. And it educates the the community or informs, I should say, about what's happening at the court. But many victims have said that they feel that they're not actually part of the process, even though the court has victim participation. Uh, Other issues at the court you could uh, suggest would be uh, the the UN Security Council referral process. So what happens is the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over a particular case, then the case can be or the situation can be referred from the UN Security Council. The problem with that is that one of the permanent five members can veto the referral. And that means that those five permanent members have extraordinary extraordinary control over the cases that are situations that go to the ICC, which very much politicises the referrals. The people who should manage this are the Assembly of State Parties, who are the states who are signed up to the Rome Statute. It's their responsibility to govern to govern the activities of the court. But I mean, beyond that, 
international justice is more than just the ICC. Even when it is being played out at the ICC, it's more than just the ICC. There are a number of other tribunals and another, a number of other justice responses. So the international community as a whole and the UN uh, have a responsibility to, to ensure that these different justice mechanisms are operating pursuant to the rule of law. And I think there is a responsibility on those states who impede international justice to uh, take steps to be more cooperative. But I mean, that's very idealistic and and the chances of that happening are quite low. So I'd like to ask about those other tribunals and justice mechanisms. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that the ad hoc courts which you've worked on, such as the mm. ECCC in Cambodia, are, are mm-hmm. more valuable to justice in the ICC given that they are in country and that they are specialised mm. to that particular state's judicial system? Or would you say that they're incomparable? No, I think it's a good question and they're very comparable. I, on one hand, you could say yes. I think there is great, there's great benefit in having a court in the country itself. If, there, if the situation is safe and the conflict has ceased and, and the justice mechanism that's been uh, established in that country is pursuant to the rule of law and, and all of those type of things, There's two different types of tribunals that can be established or have been established so far in the country. You have ad hoc tribunals. And so you've got, just say with respect to the Rwandan tribunal, that wasn't established in Rwanda. It was in a neighbouring country, but it was still a neighbouring country. It's right next door. So it's, it's a lot closer than The Hague. The ICTY was established in The Hague. So there's a dislocation there. But when you have hybrid courts like the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the Khmer Tribunal, they were both established in countries themselves. And yeah, I worked at both of those. And what I find interesting and was quite valuable is that people could actually come to the court. They could come to the court. They could see with their own eyes what was happening and they live alongside the court. And I think there is, there is a benefit in that. But both of those courts are what you would call a hybrid court. So they're an agreement between the UN and the country. The problem with that is it creates a degree of political interference or a degree of disagreement, particularly in the Cambodian context. There's been a lot of uh, criticism of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal and and the alleged uh, interference of the Cambodian government in that court. But So that's a, that's a big problem. But we also see political interference at the International Criminal Court. I think that going forward, there's going to be a lot more hybrid courts and and domestic prosecutions of international crime rather than just focusing on the International Criminal Court. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's in The Hague. And uh, considering it's been uh, going on for so long, it's had relatively few prosecutions. So you spoke before about some of the complications regarding referring the issues in Syria mm. to the ICC. Um, mm. So I understand that there are many hurdles that have to be overcome before crimes could be prosecuted or Syrian President Assad himself could be prosecuted. So could you speak to some of the issues that you see in regards to referring Syrian? It's, it's, I think Syria is a very, very sad case because even now we're seeing mass dislocation of people and the continuing uh, commission of international crimes, even during this pandemic. And, and these crimes actually mean that those people are more susceptible to the pandemic. So I think it's something that we need to actually really focus on. The pandemic has highlighted the need to focus on these international crimes because it makes the, the people more vulnerable. Yes, it's, it's very difficult to prosecute crimes that are ongoing in Syria. Syria is not a state party. 
party to their own statute. So to be prosecuted for a case to come to the International Criminal Court, normally um, one of the parties has to be a state party to the Rome statute. Uh, either the crimes have to be committed on the territory of a state party or the, the person who's committing the crimes has to be a national of the, the state party. So Syria is not. So it has to be referred from the UN Security Council. And uh, China and Russia have vetoed that referral. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Just say it was referred, something happened and it was referred to the International Criminal Court. That doesn't immediately mean that there's going to actually be an efficient and an effective case. Right now, trying to obtain evidence in Syria would be very difficult. There have been different independent mechanisms. And because of this difficulty in establishing prosecutions, there have been different international mechanisms. One was established by the Human Rights Council to gather evidence. And another one, uh, which we called International Impartial Independent Mechanism for Syria, was also established to collect evidence. And another of our other NGOs are also doing the same thing. Whether this evidence will ever be used in an actual court of law, I don't know. I hope so. I think right now it's, it's particularly we're in a pandemic as well, so I think it would be challenging. There have been suggestions that there could be a, an ad hoc tribunal for Syria. I don't think that would be possible because it would be blocked in the Security Council as well. There could be a hybrid court with Syria. Yes, a possibility, but that would require the cooperation of, of Syria potentially. So I don't think that that would work. This is how it's, uh, politics is, is interwoven in international criminal law. The next question is very complex and I'm sure there are thousands of people thinking about this across the world. But so you say that you can't see China or Russia not vetoing a move to get Syria, a Syrian case in the International Criminal Court. What then do you Mm, think can be done to prosecute these crimes that have been going on in Syria? Well, I think actually an interesting way of of responding to this could be using universal jurisdiction, which means that there can be national domestic prosecutions. I think that might be the best way forward. There is, there's not a lot of support of that in in Australia at the moment, but you do see that happening in other countries, uh, particularly in Europe, where foreign fighters might return home and, and then there can be prosecutions. There was a UN Security Council resolution which said that states must prevent their citizens from going over to Syria and participate in the fighting over there, but they must also seek to prosecute these crimes when they return home. And so Australia's been quite reluctant in allowing its citizens to come back after fighting uh, for ISIS. Yeah, I think a domestic prosecution would be the, the best way forward. But, you know, I, I always hold out hope and, and I don't, I think you, you just never know what could happen in the, the, the UN might not exist in 10 years. We don't know what will happen, do we? What do you think then can be done about some of the high leaders in the Syrian government like Assad who aren't foreign fighters or who don't oh. have another nationality? they be prosecuted under Syrian domestic law or is that too aspirational? You know what? There's, I've seen so many. I've lived in many countries where there's been a complete change of government, a complete change of circumstances. So, yes, we've seen we've seen political leaders. I worked on the defence team for Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia. So I'm sure at some time it would have seemed almost impossible to to prosecute him, but then he ended up in The Hague and he's now serving a prison sentence in the UK. So I think it, it's possible. We saw the prosecution of Milosevic in uh, in The Hague at the ICTY and he died, obviously, but uh, there are many, many leaders 
leaders, uh, particularly at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, we've seen a number of leaders who I'm sure Cambodians during the Khmer Rouge uh, regime would never have thought that they would see these people in the dock. And and going back to your question before about the value of seeing of a prosecution in a country, that is one value that these people who have been victims or their families have been victims, they can actually see these people in court and and being held to account. So yes, I think there could be a, a time when he is held accountable. But it's in what manifestation, in what form that we don't really know at this point. Moving on from Syria to another very politically controversial case, the young girl in case in Palestine, I feel is especially controversial because it has Mm. a lot of very obvious political ramifications given how political the situation is between Israel and Palestine. Mm. So would you be able to speak a little about the ICC's role in what's going on in the Palestine? Sure. That's, yeah, it's a big interest area of mine. So there's been ongoing uh, conflict, ongoing alleged crimes, committed in in what we call the occupied Palestine territories. So what happened is that there has been ongoing impunity about these crimes for over 50 years and there's been no way to to prosecute these crimes. Uh, With respect to the International Criminal Court, Israel is very opposed to the International Criminal Court. Similar to the US, Israel is not a state party uh, to the International Criminal Court. But Palestine became a state party um, on the 1st of April 2000. 15, and Palestine has been supportive of prosecutions at the court. That's even so that both Palestinians and Israelis can be prosecuted. It's not just Israelis, but Palestinians have been very supportive of the prosecutions. What happened is there was a preliminary examination that was opened by the, the prosecutor, Fatou Ben Souda. And uh, when there's a preliminary examination open, if she then wants to uh, proceed to an investigation, if she has opened the preliminary examination, she needs to ask the pretrial chamber. But what happened is Palestine then referred uh, in 2018 referred the situation to her as well which means that she didn't, she didn't have to take that step but at the end of last year Fatou Ben Souda uh, made an announcement that she believed that after much investigation and the collection of evidence she believed that it was in the interest of justice to open uh, an investigation into Palestine but this is where it's interesting she then asked the pretrial chamber, one of the chambers at the courts, to rule on the territorial jurisdiction of Palestine. And the reason she didn't have to do this, so it's quite controversial, but she did because, well, my opinion is she believed that this would solve a lot of issues that might come along after the, after the point relating to the existence of the state of Palestine. So what's happened is she's asked the court to do this before she opens the investigation. The pretrial chamber has made a call for states, individuals, victims, Palestine, Israel, to submit their opinion on this issue and that's what's happening right now so in this uh, this area and and Australia has come out and said we don't believe in the state of Palestine and we don't think that the court has jurisdiction and Israel itself has said uh, we don't believe the court has jurisdiction as well it's very interesting case I'm looking forward to seeing what happens because it's the court is is interacting with the Middle East in a way that it hasn't previously rather than just focusing on African issues Uh, So what role do you think the fact that Palestine isn't a completely accepted state, Mm. what role do you think that has in the success of prosecuting crimes in the Palestine? Personally, I think it should be considered a state. And I think that it's been accepted as a state party to the Rome Statute. So I think if there was any opposition to that, it should it should have been made before now. Palestine became a state party to the Rome Statute. It was that point that other other states should have said, no, we, we disagree, not, not at this point. It really depends on what the pretrial chamber says. It really does. And then what the prosecutor decides to do at that point. I think rather than being a challenge, I think this could actually 
beneficial, the fact that there's all of this communication about the state of Palestine and it's difficult to know what will happen going forward. But I hope that the, that the case proceeds. I really do. I think that it's time it's time for, for a situation like this to come to the ICC. And it might actually bring uh, integrity and, incre- and credibility to the court to focus on something not in Africa and to focus on such a controversial issue as well. Staying in the Middle East, it's mm. recently been announced mm. that the ICC is going to be investigating the crimes that occurred in Afghanistan. Uh, so yes. would you be able to share with us some of your initial reactions to this decision and how you see this going forward? Afghanistan was very controversial and this segues into the issue of political interference at the courts. It took 10 years for a preliminary examination to be completed by the ICC prosecutor on the Afghanistan situation. Why? We can only speculate, but it is interesting that it took such a long time. And then the ICC prosecutor then asked the pretrial chamber to rule on uh, whether they would authorise an investigation. Now, this happened at the beginning of 2019. And so the ICC prosecutor asked the pretrial chamber to uh, to investigate this situation and it was actually declined by the pretrial chamber and they said that it was not in the interest of justice to do so and that there was there was some wording about there being a potential uh, uh, obstruction of the proceedings by other parties namely the US for example and so that was very controversial and the reason this was particularly controversial is because several weeks before the US had revoked the visas of the ICC prosecutor and uh, other ICC staff who wanted to go to the US because you need to collect evidence, you need to construct a case. And, and, and the US has been very outspoken about its opposition to the ICC. So it's very interesting that that happened. And then the ICC, after 18 months of deliberating on this situation, said, no, we're not going to go forward with the investigation. But then the prosecutor appealed. And then on appeal, the appeals chamber said, yes, we will authorise the investigation. And the pretrial chamber was incorrect in saying that it wasn't in the interest of justice. They, they shouldn't have even been assessing that. They just had to see if the, the situation was within the jurisdiction of the court. So it's very interesting. And so now we're at the investigation stage. The ICC is proceeding. The US is still in opposition to the court. Afghanistan is a state party, but is not supportive of the prosecutions. I don't know what will happen. Finally, I'd like to move on to (laughs) Myanmar. Uh, A lot of people are saying that individuals in Myanmar, perhaps even leader Aung San Suu Kyi, should be referred to the ICC for the displacement Mm -hmm. of Muslims in the Rakhine state or even the ethnic conflict in Kachin state. Do you think Mm -hmm. that referring someone to the ICC is needed in Myanmar or is this more a case for perhaps the International Court of Justice or other accountability mechanisms? Great, great question. It's also particularly important to our region and and to, uh, I think, a redirection of international justice to the Asian region. So with with this, we have actually, we have an open investigation into the Myanmar-Bangladesh situation at the ICC. And the reason this is possible, Myanmar is not a state party, but Bangladesh is. And so what's being investigated is crimes against humanity, and in particular persecution and deportation of Rohingya Muslims to Bangladesh. And so it's not all of the crimes that are being investigated at the moment, but just these specific crimes. First of all, there was a pretrial chamber decision, just like with Afghanistan and Palestine. And there was no difficulty in that it was authorised by the pretrial chamber. And we're now into the investigation stage. Should this be happening? Yes, I think it's a very positive development. I think it's a very positive development. I think that international crimes shouldn't go unpunished if there is a court that pursues the rule of law, of course. And 
I think that even people higher up in the in the government, you know, I can't speak specifically to their own, what, what they've actually done themselves, but I think that there should be no barrier to who should be prosecuted. And that's what international criminal justice believes. There is a case ongoing at the moment at the International Court of Justice, which focuses on states while international criminal law focuses on individuals. And that uh, focuses on the genocide that is potentially occurring in Myanmar. And I think both of those the mechanisms and processes are existing side by side. And it's also beneficial. I don't think one is more important than the other. I think that it's actually, it's really positive development. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. So thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your perspectives <laughs> with us about the ICC. Oh no, thank you so much. It was a privilege to speak to you and you ask fantastic questions. On our next episode, one of our diplomatic liaison officers, Katie, will be speaking to a professor from Sciences Po about nuclear weapons.